Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Well, good morning, Lincoln Road Chapel. How is everyone today? special welcome to you if you are visiting today, if you're a guest of someone, a welcome to those who are watching online this morning. It's great to have you in whatever capacity that you've joined us today. And I want to start us off this morning with a question, and my question is this. You don't have to put your hand up. You don't have to actually admit this, but I want to know how long has it been since you had like a really good cry? Right. For some of us, it's probably been quite a while. Maybe for some of us, it's been quite recent. I take a fair amount of gentle and I believe to be affectionate ribbing uh, here in these parts because I am someone who is prone to get choked up. Actually, this morning, when someone saw that there was a baptism, I got asked, are you going to cry today? And I was like, oh, probably. It's, there's a high a high probability that I am probably going to cry. Um, But it's been kind of a long time since I've had a really good sob, you know what I mean? Like usually it kind of just chokes me up a little bit. I used to not really like that so much. I've kind of accepted that the emotions, I think it's because I have girls, I have daughters, I think they broke me. And so now the tears are right there. But tears, we all experience tears, right? At some point there are tears. And and tears are kind of interesting things as we think about it. They convey externally something that we're experiencing on the inside, right? It's an emotional response that literally kind of spills out from within us. Um, We cry when we're in pain, physical pain, when we have emotional pain. We shed tears of grief, of sorrow, Uh, When we're exhausted, we were just on holidays last week with a bunch of little kids and a lot of late nights, and when kids get tired, they cry a whole bunch, I'll tell you that much. We cry when we're overwhelmed, when we're disappointed. There are tears of joy, tears of gratitude, tears of happiness. There's tears, it seems, for almost every occasion, at least that's what I believe. (laughs) Today is the beginning of Holy Week, and this is the week that leads us to Easter and ultimately the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And in particular, today is the day that we often call Palm Sunday. And the story of Palm Sunday that we look at almost every year is the story of the triumphal entry, which is kind of an interesting title for that story. Maybe we'll get to that in a little bit. But over this week and over next week, as we journey to the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb, we maybe shouldn't be surprised that as we unpack the scriptures, as we look at the different texts before us, that often they are characterized by people with tears, that people are crying or weeping. There's a lot happening in these texts that warrants uh, that kind of response. And as I've been kind of reading through uh, the biblical account in preparation for Easter, it kind of has occurred to me that when we pay attention to the tears that we find in the text, They speak to us. They tell us something particularly about who God is and how we've come to know who God is through his son Jesus. Tears tell us maybe something about ourselves as we wrestle with the implications of the Easter story and what it might mean for us today. Washington Irving is a 19th century American author. He said this about tears, there is a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief, of deep contrition, 
and of unspeakable love. And so with that kind of in the backdrop for us, we're calling this Holy Week series Sacred Tears, and we're seeing within them the power of the Easter story once again, what it meant in the day that it happened and what it might mean for us in our day today. And the tears of Easter are going to invite us into places of compassion. They're going to open us up to grief and to sorrow, but ultimately they want to bring us to a place of joy and of hopefulness. And so let's just get ourselves into our text this morning. If you have a Bible, either a physical Bible or on a device, uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, Jeff read a little bit of it already to us this morning. And we're in Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 28 to 44. Now, of all the Gospel writers, uh, Luke tends to be one that includes a bunch of different details. He's very kind of detail-oriented. And actually, in his preamble to his Gospel, as he's introducing it, he does say to his readers, I have um, carefully uh, investigated everything that I've written. And you actually see that in how Luke lays out his Gospel. And if you think about the whole narrative, the whole account of Jesus that he presents for us as one unit... There are certain places where Luke includes these, uh, these lines, these moments that are helping us as the audience to understand where the story or the account or, or the narrative is headed. And one of those places, you don't have to turn there, but this is back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says this, that as the time approached for him, being Jesus, to return to heaven, to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some of your translations will say that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. This, I believe, is a critical verse for us to come back to, particularly as we're journeying through all of the Easter texts this year. Lest we begin to believe that Jesus was a victim. Lest we begin to believe that somehow his life came unraveled unexpectedly. No, Luke makes it very clear to us that Jesus has open eyes about where he is going, where this is all headed, and more than that, he moves towards it with intentionality and with purpose. And that intentionality and that purpose is on display in our text this morning. So we're going to read this together. If you have it in front of you, this is um, Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 28. The text says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day 
what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Context of our passage this morning is that it is the Passover season. And Passover was one of three major festivals in the Jewish calendar in which people who'd been uh, scattered through the empire and across Judea would return to the city of Jerusalem. They'd all pilgrimage back in. They would come to the temple. They would make sacrifices. They would participate in the feasts, in the festivities. And of those three particular festivals, really, Passover seems to be the greatest of all the Jewish celebrations. Passover Well, it reaches back, it calls back to the great story of Israel, of her exodus. That Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and had cried out to God for rescue. And God heard their cries and he responds decisively for them. He raises up the man Moses who comes to rescue them. If you know that story, there's 10 plagues in the book of Exodus. The last one, it culminates in the firstborn male of every family would perish except for the Jewish people who were to take a lamb and they were to sacrifice it and then to cook this special meal, but they were to paint their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And when the angel of death came with judgment, he sees the blood, he would pass over it. This particular plague was enough that a pharaoh sends uh, the Jewish people out of his land and they uh, cross the Red Sea and they head out to the wilderness where they become the nation that they become. This is the festival that gets celebrated every Passover. And how poignant is this for the people of Jesus' day who find themselves not under the rule of Egypt, but oppressed by a different empire, the Roman Empire. As people returned to Jerusalem to come and to participate in the festivities, uh, the crowd of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, would swell in size, doubling, tripling, as Jews scattered through the empire came home to remember and to long for the day that God would again rescue his people through the Messiah. Rome, no doubt, knew about this, knew the rhythm of these Jewish captives. And they would beef up security in case somebody got swept away in the emotions of the festivities that they could quickly stamp it out. In fact, uh, there's this sense that uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor, who had uh, usually was residing in Caesarea, was now in Jerusalem. That he actually would have come from the opposite direction that we see Jesus coming. He would have come on a war horse, on a mighty steed with uh, a row of soldiers behind him, a military procession in front of everybody to see, to remind them of who is in charge, to remind them, don't get too caught up in your celebration because we will stamp you out. See, the city of Jerusalem at Passover, it's a veritable powder keg of religious and political energy. There's one set of people who are longing for freedom and another set of people who are determined not to let that happen. And so Jesus and his disciples, they head for the city, they head for the Passover celebration as they've done many years before, only this year it's different. This year, as they hike their way up the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends two of them ahead, and he says that in town they're going to find a colt, the foal of a donkey that's never been ridden, it's going to be tied up, and they're just to untie it and bring it back to him. 
They have to imagine the concerned look on his followers' face when he says this. This is the equivalent of Jesus sending them into town to a car dealership and telling them they're going to find a small gray Prius whose doors are unlocked and the keys are in the ignition and just hop on in and drive it back to me. And they're like, I don't know what Grand Theft Donkey is, but <laughs> like, I'm not sure if this is a good idea. So Jesus tells them, if anybody asks you what they're doing, just say the Lord needs it. I think I'm going to do that the next time I'm trying to get a second piece of pie or something for dessert. Just be like, what are you doing? Uh, the Lord needs it. Uh, it seems to work because Luke informs the readers that this is precisely what happens. That they find the donkey, they begin to untie it, they're questioned about it, they say the Lord needs it, and that's enough. They're able to bring this donkey back to Jesus. Now, before we think that something miraculous or supernatural just happened, we have to remember, this is not Jesus' first trip through Bethphage and Bethany. It's quite likely that he has simply prearranged for this donkey to be used, which hasn't yet been ridden. And so, as Jesus' disciples return with the donkey, they put their cloaks on top of the donkey, and then they place Jesus on its back. And then a party breaks out. As the procession begins to move closer and closer to Jerusalem, more and more people begin to gather around and to join the, the crowd. They begin to throw their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey. The donkey's walking over their coats. They all start singing and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Other gospel accounts have them singing this word, Hosanna, which is literally translated, oh, save us. Politically charged in its nature. People gather branches. John tells us that they are palm branches. We're going to come back to that. That's important. And they wave them in front of Jesus and the donkey. Some of them lay them down in front so the donkey can walk all over them. What's happening here? What's going on in this passage? We have to know that by climbing up on that donkey and riding towards Jerusalem, Jesus is doing something that is intentionally messianic. He's making a claim about himself in this moment. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophets foretold this about Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace, shalom to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is making a messianic claim when he procures that donkey and he rides it towards Jerusalem, towards the capital. And this crowd that is responding to it, as they're growing in size, word seems to have gone on. Maybe it was the owners of the donkey that the moment they were told that their donkey was being used because the Lord needed it, maybe they ran ahead and started telling people, it's happening. It's really happening now. Remembering the words of Zechariah, more and more people come singing, praising, calling out this charged word, Hosanna, save us, waving palm branches, throwing down their cloaks, before Jesus is a way to say, you have all of me. It's a way that we would say, I would give you the shirt off my back. Make no mistake, this is an announcement 
that Jesus is king. This is a royal procession that is moving towards the city of Jerusalem at Passover of all times, towards a city that is yearning for God to deliver and to save them. And the crowds, they are ecstatic at the prospect of this. Well, almost all of the crowds. You see, Luke tells us that there's some Pharisees, some religious leaders, and they are less than thrilled. They definitively know the scripture that's being alluded to as Jesus rides this donkey, as they watch this procession, and they are not on board for it. You see, the problem is, is that Jesus doesn't fit their paradigm. They have an idea about when the Messiah came and ushered in the kingdom of God, what that might look like, and specifically what that might look like for them. They were the righteous ones. They were the ones who had taken the law most seriously. They anticipated when the Messiah came, they would have special standing within the kingdom. But this is not the indication that they have gotten from anything that Jesus has done in his ministry. In fact, he seems to have received the people that they try to push away, that they try to exclude, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. See, Jesus is not their choice for king. And so they implore him, hush your disciples, teacher. They're making a ruckus. You don't want this to keep happening as we get closer to Jerusalem. The last thing we need is a hyped-up Jerusalem to join in on this. And what's interesting is that Jesus disagrees with them. At different points in the Gospels, you see where Jesus does something miraculous. He does something astounding, and we're told that people are prepared to make him king by force. And Jesus slips away. He disengages himself from the crowd, and he goes off on his own. Other times, maybe when he heals somebody, he asks them, don't tell anybody what I've done. Don't tell anybody who I am. But here, this time, Jesus is the one who's initiating it. And seemingly, he's endorsing the response that he sees. I tell you the truth, Jesus tells the Pharisees. If the crowds were quieted, even the rocks would cry out. Not only is Jesus not shying away from what is being declared, he's essentially saying, this is a verifiable fact. I am king. You want to hush people? The rocks will cry. Nature itself will declare my lordship. This royal procession is proclaiming something true, something real, something right. But then the text takes this really weird turn. As the gleaming city of Jerusalem comes fully into sight, Jesus breaks down. He begins to weep. These aren't just tears. He is weeping and sobbing. And not only does he weep, but he begins to proclaim some measure of judgment over the city that this city will face unprecedented destruction, that the people within the walls would fall, that the, the walls themselves and the temple would be left in rubble. What's happening? Why this disconnect? 
Well, what we see as Jesus comes down the hill from the Mount of Olives on that donkey into this big crowd is a clashing of two sets of symbols being played out within the story before us. Well, the announcement that Jesus is king is not in question for anybody except maybe the Pharisees. What is in question is the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. You see, the crowds are doing something deeply symbolic as they've gathered around him, as they sing these politically charged words of Hosanna, oh save us, as they throw their cloaks on the ground, as they wave palm branches before him. Some 200 years before Jesus, Israel had gained a very brief window of freedom before Rome snatched it back for good. Under Judas Maccabeus, sometimes known as Judah the Hammer, that's a great nickname, his brother Simon, they were the sons of a priest, and they rebelled against the Hellenization of Judah, and they'd used just pockets of guerrilla warfare and managed to wrestle some measure of freedom and independence. And if you were to go into the Apocrypha, the book of 1 Maccabees, it says that the people's response was this. On the 23rd day of the second month, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals, stringed instruments, with hymns and songs. A great enemy had been crushed, had been removed from Israel. The palm branches are a callback to the last great rebellion, the last great revolution against the oppressors, the last time Israel truly believed Messiah had come. And by throwing their cloaks on the ground before Jesus, by waving the palm branches, by singing Hosanna, the people are declaring an allegiance to Jesus. They're saying, we'll pick up swords. We'll go to war with you. Let's go drive Rome out. The problem is not that they see Jesus as king. It's not that they see Jesus as Messiah. It's that they fail to see the kind of king and Messiah he's come to be. Everything that he has taught throughout his ministry, radical love for your enemy, forgiveness, love, self-sacrifice, all of that has been dismissed. And now the crowds want Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that they want him to be, to pick up where the Maccabean brothers left out, left off, to wipe out the enemies, to run them out of town, to establish their national and political freedom once again. They'd remembered Zechariah 9.9 as it proclaimed the coming Messiah, but they failed to remember what it meant. Here's Jesus, not riding on a war horse or a steed like Pontius Pilate, but lumbering down the road on a small donkey and a borrowed one at that. They are clamoring for strength and for power, and here comes Jesus in humility, in gentleness, lowly, and this disconnect, it would seem, is too much for Jesus. He begins to weep. And understand these are not tears of judgment. These are tears of compassion, of longing. If only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The crowds are ready to proclaim Jesus as king but only if he fits into their mold of what the Messiah should look like. We see that a week from now 
as they've completely changed, as they yell out, we have no king but Caesar. See, this is a crowd that's more committed to the way of Caesar and the way of Rome. They want to take back through the sword, through violence, more than they want to embrace the way of Jesus, the one who proclaims true shalom through forgiveness, through sacrifice, and through love. Jesus weeps, not because of where it is leading him, but because he knows where it is leading them. The way of our world, the way of the world, sword, power, might, it leads to destruction. Jesus speaks prophetically in this moment of what would happen only a few decades later, that the Jews, so committed to picking up swords, would take a run once more at Rome, and Rome would respond and would crush them. In AD 7, the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God is obliterated, left in rubble. See, they fail to take the way of Jesus laid out before them, choosing instead the way of the world, and it leads to destruction. Jesus weeps tears of compassion over them. He grieves for the choice that he sees them making because he knows where it's going to take them. And he longs for them. Turn back. Come back to my way and find true and lasting peace. The story of the triumphal entry is the story that we're all faced with every day. What is not in question is whether Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord. The rocks would cry out. It is the reality under which we live our lives that the one true God who makes himself known to us in his son Jesus is the one who rules over all things and whose way alone is life. But there's a choice that needs to be made about what we're going to do with that. For some of us, the response is the same as the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't fit our mold. We want to reject, to squelch it, to oppose it. We'll just deny it. We'll go our own way. But for others, and it is an equally devastating choice, is to try to force Jesus to fit into who we want him to be. This happens when we remain firmly committed to the ways of the world around us, trying to fit Jesus into our political ideologies, our nationalist agendas, when we proclaim he's king with our mouth, but we still believe in our hearts and our lives that true peace and true comfort in life comes through power and through might and through strength and through wealth. It gets played out in our refusal to extend grace and forgiveness to our enemies. When we silently hope for their downfall, and then when they do, we rejoice. When we reframe our morals or our ethics around what we want or what our culture says, rather than aligning ourselves with God's call to holiness. When we're people who walk in pride, thinking that we know best or place ourselves above others, the way of our world is loud, and it is persuasive, and it is okay with your faith in Jesus as long as you leave it internalized, as long as you don't allow it to step out on the outside and influence how you engage in the marketplace, in the political arena, in the society as a whole. But Jesus still comes to us in the same way. 
Jesus still comes to us gently with humility. He continues to invite us to see him in his way as it is, to turn away from power that corrupts, strength which oppresses, and violence which destroys. He invites us to fall in step with him, to be prepared to be people who pour our whole lives out for the good of others, even the one who's our perceived enemy. He invites us to be people who are conduits of grace, of mercy, who work for justice and restoration in the world, knowing that only it's through his way, a cruciform way of life, of self-sacrifice and love, that we will see shalom. And God continues to weep for those who reject him and to weep in the places where we allow ourselves to be formed by the systems around us because he knows the consequences of our choices, that they lead us away from life that is only found in him towards destruction. And he grieves that on our behalf. He longs for so much more for us. And so this morning, Jesus comes to you again. And he comes to you still gentle, still humble, still with a hand outstretched towards you with grace and with mercy. And the question is, will you give yourself to him, fully to him and his ways? Would you lay down the palm branches of the world's ideologies and commit yourself to his way in his way alone? Behold, see that your king comes to you righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He proclaims peace to the nations, and he proclaims peace to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that at times we want to twist what you say and who you are to fit our agendas, that we want to pick up palm branches and force you into a place that you have no intention of going. So Spirit, would you have freedom to work in our hearts and our lives in this moment, in this day, that we would know what would bring us peace? Would you open our eyes to the reality of you visiting us on this day? And will we be prepared to bend the knee to the one who is the true king? We thank you that you are gentle, that you are humble. We thank you that you have compassion towards us as we wander off the way. Would you speak to us again and call us back? Would you strengthen us to return to the place that we know we must go? We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us even when we are wayward. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we gather around the table of communion as we do every week, we are reminded the way of God's kingdom comes not through sword, not through violence, not through power, but through self-sacrifice and love. That the king who rides to us on a donkey, lowly and humble, is the same king who is exalted, not in strength, but on a cross. It is an upside-down kingdom, but it is here in Jesus, not grasping for power, but releasing it in self-sacrifice and love that darkness and sin and ultimately the grave is overcome. 
Here on the cross, Jesus takes upon himself all that the world throws at him, all of my sin, all of your sin, all of the brokenness of the world around us, and he overcomes it through his death and his resurrection. And so you and I are invited as those who see him as the true king, as the ones who uh, receive him as he is to take and to eat and to remember that this is how our victory, this is how our life was won, and that we'd commit ourselves again to him and to his way alone. And so we eat and we drink and we proclaim and give thanks to the one to whom we belong, the one who gives us peace through his cross and by his life and death. The body of Christ is given to you and the blood of Christ is shed for you. I'm going to invite the ushers to come up, but before they come up, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we remember in this season in a deeper way than we do, I think, throughout the rest of the year, but here again we are confronted by your willingness to pour your whole self out for us. That on the cross, uh, your body is broken as your blood is shed, but you take upon yourself the brokenness of the world, the sin of the world. You take upon yourself the fullness of death, that death could not swallow you, but that you overcome in your resurrection. And so as we eat bread and we drink cup, as we give thanks for what you have done for us, would you remind us again of how it is that we have come to be yours? Would we model it in how we live, that we'd be people of sacrifice and of love and of grace and of mercy, even as we've received from you? We thank you for this gift and this reminder of who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do. And so we give thanks in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.